I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn with them, uh, turn in them to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we're continuing our study today in Hebrews 2, and we will see this morning Jesus, the ultimate Son of Man. This part of the chapter begins a transition uh, in the letter, where the author begins to now look at Jesus Christ from a different vantage point. I think very often we hear of characters and we see characters doing lots of different things. Uh, we see them represented doing different activities or in relation to other people. I was thinking about uh, this week all of the, the examples of uh, Curious George in his life. Uh, we have Curious George flying a kite and Curious George going to the hospital. Uh, we have Curious George riding a bike and getting a medal and Curious George's first day of school. And uh, as the marketing budget increases, there's about 50 other things that George does that maybe he has no business doing, but it's an opportunity to sell another book. But the idea is we take this character and, and we've come endeared to the character and then we begin to see the character in all of these different arenas, doing different activities and represented from different vantage points. And if you were to consider the Lord Jesus Christ, who is greater than so many things, as the writer of Hebrews will keep showing us, Everything he's been focusing on so far is Jesus as God. Jesus, the superior son, as God. If you think back to chapter 1, we saw that the son is superior over angels because he is the eternal son of the father, verses 4 and 5. Then we saw that the son is superior because uh, Angels worship him in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. So he's superior over angels because he is the eternal son of the Father. He's over angels because he's worshipped by them. And we saw that the son is superior even over angels because he is the exalted king over an eternal kingdom. That was in verses 8 and 9. And the writer showed us that the son is superior over angels because he is Lord and he is the eternal creator in verses 10 through 12. And then at the end of chapter 1, we saw that the Son is superior even over angels because he is exalted, he alone is exalted to the right hand of God. That's verses 13 and 14. And so chapter 1 is all about seeing Christ as the exalted Son, Christ as the exalted Lord, Christ as the exalted God. And then we come racing into the beginning of chapter 2, and the author says, God has spoken to us through Christ, so you'd better not become complacent in hearing his voice. In light of the magnificence of Christ, you are to be sensitive to his word. You must not disregard the word of the Son. You must not drift away from it, because if you drift away from Christ, you're drifting away from God, and surely you will face eternal punishment and separation from him. And so this week, the author begins to take a shift. And now in the title of our lesson, it is the superior son becomes a man. The superior son becomes a man. We've seen him in all these exalted ways as God. And now this week, we begin to see God, the second member of the Trinity, represented in taking on flesh. The superior son is also the Son of Man, and he becomes a man so that he can represent mankind, so that he can represent the curse. 
See, Adam was the representative of the human race, as we will see today. And when Adam transgressed in his role, he brought all of the horrors that we face in this world along with that as a consequence. And now we needed someone to come and reverse the curse, and he had to be a man. And so God took on flesh to accomplish that job. If you want to frame up this morning's message, it is God's destiny for mankind is achieved in Jesus. So God had a a wonderful plan from the very beginning. He had a destiny for which he had created man. And that destiny was disrupted very, very quickly. The original design was tarnished when Adam sinned. And yet God's ultimate plan, because he is sovereign, could never be thwarted. So we'll see first this morning that the dignity and dominion granted and ruined in Adam, verses 5 through 8a. And then we will see dignity and dominion gained and protected in Jesus in verses 8b through 9. That being said, let's read the text before us this morning. We'll go back up and begin in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest... We drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. You know, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, the argument so far has been that God has given us his son and his son must be listened to. Israel disregarded the prophets. Israel disregarded the son. Now these fledgling believers are called to not lose heart, but to continually look to the son. And what he's wanting to remind them now of is, is the superiority over the, over, of the Son over angels, not only revealed in his deity, but also revealed in his humanity. And so our first point this morning is the dignity and dominion granted and ruined in Adam. The dignity and dominion granted and ruined in Adam. The other begins here with 4 in verse 5. And so he's explaining uh, what he's previously said, this warning in verses 1 through 4. And he's reasoning why it's so important that you don't disregard the voice of Jesus Christ. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Now, when he's talking about the world 
to come here. He's, he's speaking of the coming kingdom. Not the world that we see right now, but the world that's coming that's going to replace everything that we see now. And so what he's beginning to write here is, is that angels, as we have looked at already, had a, a very high standing in the minds of most Jews. They were the ones that were considered to be those who would govern the world. He's saying that, that when God replaces this world with his future kingdom, angels aren't going to be in any kind of a position of authority. In fact, as we saw back in chapter 1, angels' role in the coming kingdom is going to be what? They're going to be ministers. They're going to be servants that serve the Lord and as we'll see, serve his people. And so he's saying, as, as important as it was not to disregard the voice and the message that was mediated by angels in the giving of the Mosaic Covenant, now don't begin to think that angels have an ultimate position of authority because in fact God subjected the world to come not to them, but to humanity. This idea of subjected was used, the idea of, of arranging soldiers under a commander. It's the idea of administration, who's going to be calling the shots, who's going to be responsible and in charge. And so the idea is that although right now angels are in exalted position, namely they're in heaven with God, they are sinless, they do not face death, in the grand scheme of things, that's a temporary position. And in fact, in the eternal kingdom, they will be serving Christ and his people. And so the author triggers this thought in the sermon. And he wants to explain and validate what he's asserting. And so he says in verse 6, it has been testified somewhere. And he quotes the Old Testament. He quotes Psalm 8 in the middle of this sermon. He goes back to a familiar text. We've already seen the Psalms quoted very heavily in chapter 1. And that's where the author goes now. And so he does almost a direct quote in verses 6 through 8 where he goes back and he pulls out the center of Psalm 8 and he brings it into this sermon. And so I want to show you how it is and why it is that he's using this passage. In order to do that, turn back in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8 and let's look at how he's framing up this argument. Psalm chapter 8, which we just read a few minutes ago, begins to the choir master according to the Githen, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. So you have David beginning this psalm. And David was into poetry. So if you're a manly man and you're into poetry, that's okay. David was certainly a warrior and he also enjoyed poetry. He was musical. He was artistic. And so David, we don't know the exact setting, but was probably looking up to the sky, reflecting when he penned this psalm. We know that he was a shepherd, so no doubt he'd spent many nights out 
in the open stars. He wouldn't have had all of the city lights or the smog and pollution to prevent seeing all the stars. You know what it's like when you get out far away from the city in the dark and you can really see what's going on up in the heavens. And you think, where did all these stars come from? Because I don't usually see them. That was a common experience for David. And so David is is laying back as he would have many times, looking up into the heavens, And as we all are, when we see the galaxy, even with the naked eye, we're immediately awestruck. There's something that is remarkable about considering the universe. And to think that what you can see with the naked eye is is barely anything. Our most powerful telescope is able to see 13 billion light years into the galaxy. And ostensibly, it keeps going. We just don't have a telescope powerful enough to see past 13 billion light years. You're going to put that in context. A a light year would be traveling 36,373 miles per hour for an entire year. Remember when we were moving from Florida to Oregon and we were trying to do it quick? I think we did it in five days. It's 3,500 miles, 70 miles an hour. Those are very long days and, and short nights, it seems. Driving across the entire United States only takes a few days going a few miles per hour with stops and breaks. 13 billion light years would be 13 billion years of going 36,373 miles per hour. And so David is looking up at the heavens and he's saying as, as incredible as the heavens are, your glory is actually above that. So all of that is just a mere reflection of your greatness and your majesty. And so, Lord, as I I look at creation, I do exactly what I'm supposed to, which is to to be in awe of the one who made all of this. And so whenever you consider the majesty of creation, the next immediate thought, if you're thinking rightly and rationally, is to feel very, very small. Small. It's to feel insignificant. It's to feel like there's nothing that you really contribute or have to offer in comparison to the greatness of God. And this is the very thing then that that hits David right between the eyes as he looks at the galaxy. And so he says in verse 3, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you've set in place, then the immediate thought that comes into my mind is, what? In the world is man. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You could say it this way. What, what does it mean that you would be thinking of me? The idea here of, of being mindful or caring is, is the same word that James would use in James chapter 1 when he talks about caring for widows and orphans. It's not merely saying to, to just happen to recognize that they exist, but to rather have a burden that would move you to action in your concern for their plight and their situation. It's used when Jesus speaks of those who would visit the needy and the naked and the sick and those who were in prison in Matthew 25. And so in some way we understand that the writer of Hebrews is beginning to draw 
from this psalm, and he's going to ultimately terminate his, his argument in Christ. But David right now is speaking first about humanity in general. And so he's saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled to think, how in the world does the God that's able to create the entire universe have time, uh, concern, care, to have a regard for me as an individual in my estate? But he realizes God does. And so he's reflecting on the fact that God, in fact, wants a relationship with him. God communicates with him. God wants to know him. He does say the son of man, but son of man appears throughout the Old Testament. Certainly in Daniel, it's in conjunction with the Messiah, but very often it could just be someone who is the son of a man. It was used in Ezekiel in that way. And so I believe that he's speaking here generically about creation. And the paradox that that David is trying to get his mind around is how can God be so grand and yet at the same time care for me as his child? He's shocked by it. And yet, the scripture says that your, your very hairs on your head are numbered by God. The scriptures say that he knows you're rising up and you're lying down. He's well acquainted with your ways. He knows your thoughts from afar. He knows a word before you speak it. He knows your frailty that you are but dust. In fact, God understands and knows you better than you know yourself and better than anyone else does on the planet. And so David is just in awe and in wonder at God's care and, and dignity, really, that he would give to humanity. You think about mankind when he says, what is man? The, the Hebrew language had many different words to use uh, to describe the same thing. And so uh, very commonly in the Old Testament, you'd have the word for man that just kind of meant he's dust or he's earth. Uh, you had the word for man that meant he's a strong and mighty man, the Gabor man. This is the Enosh man. This is, this is the weak. This is a word to designate the, the frail side of humanity. The part of us that struggles and is insignificant. And you think of the other ways that Scripture describes us in our weakness, you begin to think of the imagery. Our life is but a handbreadth or a span. The Bible calls us worms. That's not very flattering. Dust. Lumps of clay. Mist or vapor simply a creature. And so the idea of God's mindfulness is that he's looking to these weak, really helpless and insignificant creatures, and yet he's drawing near to them in his presence to visit them and to care for them, not just generically on the whole, but individually and specifically. Therapeutic Christianity is a major problem where we come to the Bible and we read the Bible first to find out about ourselves. We primarily think that this world exists for us and that God exists for us in our desires. We come to Him as a, a genie or uh, someone to fulfill what we want most. See, the Bible is relentlessly God-centered that exalts that we exist for Him and not the other way around. 
We need him. He doesn't need us. We are dependent upon him. He's independent. Yet the Bible does present God as being uniquely, distinctly concerned with the creatures whom he has made. And so there is this tremendous dignity that God gives to humanity. And in fact, in verse 5, David says that you've made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The heavenly beings here is is Lord Elohim that often you hear uh, translated as God. That's the most common. It could certainly mean angels or heavenly beings. It's used in the variety of ways there. But it's probably best to understand that, that you've made man a little bit lower than God. What David means by that is that although we are creatures, although we are far below God, he doesn't treat us like garbage. He doesn't treat us like we're insignificant or worthless. In fact, when we think about why as believers we care so much about the sanctity of life, it's because we believe that God created each human and he put his image into humanity and therefore he is concerned with each and every life. That it's not based upon the merit of the individual as we would assess that. And so often in our sinful flesh we do. But to say rather every human being has dignity and worth bestowed upon them by their creator. And so God gives remarkable dignity to his people in spite of how dwarfed they are by his massive creation. And yet the angels, the angels were not created in God's image. And so if the heavenly beings here means God or it means angels, it could be either one. The idea is that there's something special about humanity that's totally different from all the angels. The angels are not created in the image of God. And so... Man is given this dignity. And he's not only given dignity, but he's given dominion. Verse 6, you've given him, you've given man dominion over the works of your hands. And you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. And so we read that word for dominion in verse 6. And you can't help but think of Genesis chapter 1 and God's original design in creation. Listen as I read these three verses from the creation account. Then God said, Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So what did God do? He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, God said out of all of creation, I'm going to create man in my own image for my glory. And as I rule over the earth, I'm going to delegate that same rule and responsibility to man. And now man is my vice regent, namely Adam and his wife Eve. They will rule over creation. 
Our Kent Hughes said it was the first king and queen there in the garden, given dominion over the world. So you think, well, that sounds pretty remarkable. There's dignity, there's dominion in God's original design for humanity. This is his incredible love for his creatures. And yet, there's a problem. And the writer of Hebrews begins to acknowledge this. And so you can turn back to Hebrews chapter 2 and see now how it is that this author is drawing out the lesson that David is thinking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's bringing it back to understand the world around us and then the role that Christ played as the second Adam. See, God put everything in subjection to man. Second part of verse 8 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control, but at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. See, immediately when Adam and Eve sinned and God came and he brought a curse and pronounced it upon creation, suddenly creation went out of control. Suddenly, creation wasn't something that man could tame any longer. You know, think about all of the hand-wringing that goes on as we see rivers dry up and animals go extinct. As we see buildings fall over because of flooding that takes place. So we see earthquakes and we see crops that don't yield and we see famines. We see a creation that, that is not flourishing under the dominion of man, but rather man is, is struggling to wrangle under control and it's not working out very well. See, when Adam sinned in the garden, God's original design for humanity to flourish over perfect creation was ruined. And so we don't currently at this point see everything in subjection under the rule of God. Sometimes we sing and that song, Is He Worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? And then we affirm, yes, we do. Just think with me for a moment about the brokenness of this created order that man was given the dignity and the dominion to have responsibility over. Worldwide, it's estimated that 700 million people go to bed every single night with hunger pains. Nearly eight Hundred million people live on a dollar ninety per person per day, which is impossible to have a healthy lifestyle with. Think about the struggle that we have with substances. It's estimated by uh, statistics from our government that one in three adults in America has some enslaving struggle with substance abuse. Every single year, 50 million babies are murdered in the womb before they even leave the safety of their mother's stomach. Right now, it's estimated there's 20 million people in slavery, in sex trafficking, most of them women and many of them children. Divorce rates are unknown in our country, but they're estimated that nearly 50% of all marriages end in this way. Children are harmed in our country alone. 160,000 children are put into the foster care system each year. 
on the particular issue of abuse. So that's not all of the children that go into the foster system, but 160,000 children a year simply over the issue of abuse. Every year, nearly one million people in this world choose to end their life rather than continue it by killing themselves. And we could keep going on with cancer and adultery and homosexuality and gender reassignment and natural disasters and rape and theft and genocide. But it is obvious when when we look at the world around us and it's affirmed here in the text that right now we don't see everything properly in subjection to God and ultimately to the righteousness of a righteous ruling man. And so what gives? Is it that God is unconcerned about that? Is it that he's struggling in some way? Of course, no. It's the idea that that right now, although he has all authority, he is waiting to put his enemies under his feet at a fixed time in the future. Peter says he's waiting because he wants to give men the opportunity to repent. The reason why he's waiting is because he's merciful and he's gracious. He's waiting so that that people will still have time to turn and believe in Christ and receive full forgiveness for their sins. And so he's patiently waiting. And yet if you were to look at the world around us, you have to say we have gotten ourselves into a big mess and we can't get out. We have all types of solutions to try to fix the broken world. Many people today put their hope in uh, government to provide for them the path to victory and health and wholeness and prosperity that everyone so desires. But the problem is every earthly kingdom is still going to be run by corrupt humans. And, and no human is able to break us free from the curse. And so we see that God in his marvelous wisdom and in his grace sent Jesus Christ so that dignity and dominion would be gained and protected in him. See, as as much as we've messed up the plan, you could say, there was an ultimate plan that had already accounted for this. This took God not by surprise in the garden. He understood before the foundation of the world what was going to take place. He'd foreordained it to maximize his glory in sending Christ. But the idea is that when in the garden he gave this dignity to Adam, he gave this responsibility and dominion to Adam, and Adam messed it up, he said, my agenda is still going to be accomplished. The destiny is still going to happen. I'm still going to achieve exactly what I had planned to achieve. And so as the writer says, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Although we see a a creation that is groaning and longing for redemption. But, verse 9, but, on the contrary, as much as we see so many things in chaos around us, as much as we see this dominion running out of control and running amok, we see something. We see this by faith. What is it that we see? We see a whom. A him, a him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. My friends, this is the first time that Jesus has been named Jesus in this epistle. See, so far we saw him revealed as the son in verses 2 and 5 of chapter 1. 
We saw him referred to as God in chapter 1, verse 8. We saw him referred to as Lord in verses 10 and 13. Deity, deity, deity. And now we see Jesus, and the revelation of Jesus is emphasizing no longer his deity, but his humanity. The fact that he became a man. This is, this is the way that we express his humanity and focus on it, is to call him Jesus. Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Well, how did that happen? Well, for a little while, he could bleed, and he could get sick, and he could die. See, angels can't do those things. There in heaven is spirits that don't get sick, and they don't die. And so Jesus became lower in dignity, lower than the angels for a time, And the superior son condescends. My friends, this is our introduction in the letter of Hebrews to the incarnation. To the understanding of Jesus as a man. And in fact, Hebrews has some of the most marvelous and challenging to understand uh, descriptions of what it meant for Christ to be a true man. For God to do this, the eternal God, he had to stoop. He had to stoop to to be beneath the very spirit beings that he created. This was his abasement, to live as one of us, to become as one of us. And yet this was something that was temporary. See, not his humanity, his his personhood now as the God-man will endure forever, but his experience of living on this earth, born of a woman, was temporary. His abasement was temporary because right here in the text it says that, that Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. You think about the glory and honor that Christ is crowned with. What God is saying is that his accomplishment of the mission for which he sent him reveals his character and vindicates his glory as he sits in a position of authority. What's interesting is the the writer of Hebrews right now isn't going to spend much time on this. He's not terribly concerned at the moment with representing Jesus in his glory. He mentions it, but his focus here in the text is actually on his death. The whole reason why becoming a human was necessary in the first place. One commentator writes, This statement is best understood as the purpose for the Lord's being made lower than the angels in his incarnation. The focus of the statement, despite its reference to Jesus' present glory, is on the fact that he became a man in order to die. What is the purpose that God took on flesh? The text says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death For everyone. My friends, for God to accomplish redemption, he didn't merely graze the earth as a spirit being. He didn't merely raise up some deliverer like in the period of the judges that was simply a man that would come and provide deliverance for his people. He came himself and when he came, he he came in the full experience of humanity. He didn't merely look like a human, he became a man. Not merely to suffer, but even to die. One writer captures it in this way. 
Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels so that he could become a man. And he became a man so that he could die. He came to die because his death and only his death could accomplish man's salvation. Those tiny hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made to take two great nails. Those little feet were made to climb a hill and be nailed to a cross. That sacred head was made to wear a crown of thorns. And that tender body, wrapped in swaddling clothes, was made to be pierced by a spear. For this, Christ came to earth. His death was the furthest thing from an accident. And despite those evil ones who crucified him, his death was the furthest thing from a tragedy. See, his death was God's ultimate plan for his son and his ultimate gift for mankind. See, over and over, the writer of Hebrews is going to extol Jesus as God, who became humiliated as a man, so that he could go to the cross and accomplish redemption, so that then he would be glorified, and now he's in a position of authority. That's the theme. That's the arc. We're going to see it over and over and over. See, when he went to the cross, it's referred to here as as one who tasted death. This is not uh, when you're offered something that you're scared to eat, and you say, just give me a little taste. This means that he... He took the full experience of death. What kind of death was it? Well, surely each or most of us in this room will die. Believers throughout the centuries have died. So when he tasted of death, it wasn't that he was rescuing us from a physical death. He was rescuing us from a spiritual death by dying under the wrath of God, being punished as a substitute. Text says here that he he came to do this that he might taste death for everyone. That he might taste death for everyone. You say, well, that almost sounds like universalism. Sounds like Jesus died and now everybody gets apart. But look at look at the context here. The author defines who the everyone is who who receives the benefit of the death of Christ. Verse 10, it is many sons. Many sons. Verse 11, it is his brothers. Verse 12, again, it is his brothers. Verse 13, it is the children of God. Verse 16, it is the offspring of Abraham. And verse 17, it is the people whose sins he has made propitiation for. My friends, when Jesus came to this earth and he tasted death for everyone, it was for everyone who believes on the Son. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will be raised up on the last day with Christ. This tasting of death is for some, but it's not for those who deserve it. It is is those who have been graced by the grace of God. Last part of verse 9 says that this is so that by the grace of God, he might taste death 
for everyone. What is grace? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. How did God's grace send Jesus to the cross? Well, it was his initiative. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, it is Christ who reconciled us to God, 2 Corinthians 5. And this is the very definition of love that we know, 1 John 4.10. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. My friends, salvation comes by grace and by grace alone. It is to those who don't deserve God's favor. In fact, God gave his son, and Paul says in Romans 5, that he gave him to us freely. That he is the free gift of God. It is not like the trespass. Rather, it is a free gift that abounds to many. And so what the author wants to to demonstrate here for those who were, were caught up in an overestimation of angelic beings to say that Jesus Christ is is not only far superior to the angels in his deity, but he's actually far superior to the angels even in his humanity. And then as he begins to assert that, he says, let's just talk about humanity for a minute and what Christ has accomplished. Humanity was given dignity and dominion by God. This incredible opportunity. And he blew it. And he blew it so bad that there was no recovery, save God initiated a plan to bring that recovery through Jesus Christ, who will restore dignity and dominion to humanity. Now, how does this thing come full circle? Well, we're going to share with Christ in his glorious reign. Revelation 20 reads as follows. John's vision, then I saw the thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their heads. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. See, Paul says if we died with him, then we're also going to reign with him. You say, what is that going to look like? I have no idea. I've been trying to get my mind around it. It's pretty unfathomable. The Bible's convinced of it. In fact, you get these little occasional throwaway references that just leave you scratching your head, like when Paul's telling the church, hey guys, here's an idea. Instead of going and having lawsuits in the public court, why don't you all work out the squabbles amongst yourselves? Because, you know, someday you're going to be judging angels. And then he just moves on and you're thinking, what are you talking about? You just give me this like little tiny sliver. I don't even know how to comprehend all of that. Well, the idea is that in the dominion of Christ, when he has the full dignity and dominion as the true man, the better Adam, we're going to share in that dignity. We're going to share in that glory and that dominion. And that was God's destiny for mankind from beginning. One theologian says, it is in him, it is in Jesus as a man, that all of God's promises to you and purposes for humanity are fulfilled. 
And so we say with the Apostle Paul, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, what an incredible mercy and tenderness that you would not simply say to Adam, you break it, you buy it, uh, you mess things up, and uh, there's no second chance, there's no way out. I warned you, I told you the consequences, I explained what was going to happen, you decided to test me anyway, and so now all you know is death and destruction. But Lord, we know that even what took place in the garden was part of your foreordained plan because it showcases, uh, in particular, your sovereignty and your mercy uh, in a way that we see all the more. Lord, through creating one lump of clay and out of that lump of clay, showing mercy on some. Lord, I pray that if there are any in this room that think they can stand before you apart from the finished work of Christ, or that they would see the, the arrogance and the pride and the folly of that, or that they would turn and find what Jesus offers. Lord, for all of us who are in Christ, I pray that these lofty realities that honestly are so difficult to even apprehend and, and comprehend and get our minds around, uh, Lord, that more and more they would begin to affect how we view ourselves, how we view this short passing life, how we view where we're going. Lord, that, that would result in joy and hope and stability and transformation. Lord, thank you for the security that we have now through Christ. We love you so much. We praise you for this work. Amen.